When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm so glad to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve you with advice and information and guidance that empowers you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast and that you want to subscribe to it. Follow us, like us, wherever you listen or watch as well. You know, letting others know about the content we have is something I really appreciate with all the reviews that people are posting. In today's episode, there's sobering data on how much it costs now for a first-time home buyer to buy a home. It's amazing how expensive it is in some places, but even the average in the country is crazy high right now. And, you know, I've talked about how much I don't trust the food delivery services, not because the food comes cold and soggy, but how much more you pay than the regular prices at the restaurant. Well, I want to talk about something that a number of restaurants at higher price points are trying now, stuff you wouldn't expect that they're now doing. So let's talk about housing because it is a constant refrain of people who've been saving up and want to buy a home that they cannot afford to buy that first-time home. The average income you need in the country to buy uh, what was referred to historically as a starter home, about a hundred grand. That's a lot. I mean, in about half of the nation's big metro areas, it's really hard. Even a hundred grand isn't going to make it possible for you to buy a home. This has really, really been a bummer for people. And obviously, when you look at the most expensive places to buy a home in the country, California is up there, the four most expensive large metro areas in the country, the mainland U.S., because Honolulu is its own thing, are all California. San Francisco, San Jose, San Diego, L.A. I mean, my goodness. In Silicon Valley, the average salary you need to be able to afford a home, $375,000 a year. Come on. I mean, New York, which used to be the most expensive place in the lower 48, dollars grand will make it possible for you to afford a house. 60% more than the average in the country of about hundred grand. So in this circumstance, in this situation, I want to say again, something that has discouraged people. But please don't let it discourage you because it's just a matter of time. The house price curve that went down so much after 2007 with all the attendant banking scandals and went down and down and bottomed out in 2012 in most places in the country, then over the last decade went steadily higher and higher and then rapid acceleration during COVID, has now done what? 
it's pretty much leveled off again. And in some markets in the United States that went up like a rocket during COVID, values are actually declining small percents. Over this decade, we're going to see housing become more affordable. And it doesn't have to become more affordable by prices dropping. Just by prices not going up as much as typical income will year by year by year, time is your friend if you're looking to buy. And the ridiculous lack of affordability will give way as prices moderate, and in some places they will decline a little, not a lot. But the other thing is interest rates are likely at their peak. And the affordability factor will change if you give it some time because of the combination of prices stalling out and interest rates on mortgages coming down. They're not going back to 3%, but they are almost certainly coming down. And my prediction, which you may have heard earlier this year, somewhere in the fives is likely where we're going to land. Krista? This is from Carla in California. I'm buying a condo. I have a strong down payment of about 30%. Okay, how ironic it is that I said the four most expensive metros in the continental U.S. are all in California. And then here we have Carla buying a place in California. Carla, I'm sorry it's so expensive. But good for you for having a 30% down payment. That's awesome. The agent I'm working with suggested a rate buy down and less down payment. Is that a good idea? And if so, how much should I buy down? I'm in the LA market and will be here for at least 10 years. 10 year cycle means that a buy down that's not just a three year buy down, but one that would cover the life of the loan or five or 10 years may be better than more down payment. You have to run the numbers because it's not an automatic. How many months is it to break even where you paying a lower down payment, meaning you're going to have higher carry on the loan, you're going to be paying more in interest on the loan, but you'll be doing so at a lower rate. Where's that break even on that taking out a higher loan balance? So yes, it's very possible for a long-term owner to benefit from putting down less than 30%, taking out a little bit more of a loan, and doing the buy-down. However, what I just said two minutes ago, the odds are strong that interest rates are at or near their peak. There's a good chance you will have an opportunity to refi in, let's say, the next two years into a meaningfully lower rate. So if it were me... You can run the numbers, but I would absorb the higher payment, the higher interest rate on the loan and have less total balance owed because of the fact that I think that interest rates will decline. But again, see what the break-even point is. Doing, let's say, 20% down instead of 30% down, you have the higher balance, but you have the buy-down of the rate to see what feels like it's the best call. There is no automatic right answer here, but I would say the tipping point is likely that you should have an opportunity to refi in the next few years. 
Grace in South Carolina says, my mother-in-law, who we would not trust any further than we could throw her, Ooh. may be getting a settlement from a lawsuit totaling somewhere between $1.5 and $1.7 million. She's asking us for advice on what to do with the money. This needs to last her basically forever. She's around 63, and she's been allergic to work her whole life, and there is absolutely zero chance she will ever be allowed to live with us. She needs to be protected from herself, and we think that she would actually do what we advise her. My first instinct is to find a fee-only fiduciary planner, but even what they might advise will give her too much access to her own money. We do not want one single dime from her, but her family is also insane and would bleed her dry given the chance. Would a trust or even an annuity, sorry to cuss, work here? Any advice would be appreciated. It's a bizarre circumstance. Also, my poor kids, 11 and 8 years old, are fourth generation Clarkies. Oh, man, man. In this family, there's been a lot of abuse having to listen to me for decades, huh? <laughs> so, Grace, first of all, you're from the South. They say you're always supposed to interview the family before you marry somebody. The family's not okay. You don't marry them. Don't marry in that family. Come on. I'm just joking. That's, That's an old, there, I, mean, I how forget many, what the old Southern expression is, but there's one like how that. How many about. families are normal and sane? I haven't met many. <laughs> so You haven't met a normal, sane family? I mean, not many. No, not many. Every family has trauma and drama. Okay. Yeah, what is it? I think it was Ram Das who said, if you think you're enlightened, go visit your family for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> So you mentioned a key word here and your mother-in-law would have to agree to it. Having a trust drawn with a trustee who would control the funds for your mother-in-law would be the safest way. This is normally what is done in a situation where someone can't trust themselves with money. It would end up being impoverished. This is a one-time shot with getting a million and a half or so dollars. That's a lot. Uh, someone in a trust arrangement where they get an allowance, and your mother-in-law in this case would have to voluntarily agree to this, the trustee's job becomes in the trust, it's drawn by a lawyer, to preserve assets to handle the rest of your mother-in-law's natural life. And so she would receive, based on you know expected return, she would receive an amount probably around 4 to 5 to 6% of the money available each year would come to her in monthly or quarterly checks, and the trustee would invest with a longer-term horizon based on her life expectancy, which would be at 63, maybe to 80-something would be normal, would invest with that horizon to overcome inflation over the years. So a trust arrangement that, again, you have to know your mother-in-law. You said you can't trust her as far as you can throw her. So is she going to be willing to allow, and the best trustee is a trusted family member, if there is such a thing in your family, is the one who gives the allowance. And you can use services like Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab to send a check each month. Uh, on behalf of the trustee to the beneficiary, in this case, your mother-in-law. This is a case, though, where sitting down with a fee-only financial planner would be a great idea. And we have uh, new added information on Clark.com 
about how to find a trusted fee-only financial planner who may have far superior suggestions to what I have about a trust. Problem with annuities is the fees are so high and the straitjacket you're in, in terms of you make a mistake with the wrong annuity, you're stuck with it because of the surrender charges. It's not normally a recommended path. Plus, the tax treatment is hideous with annuities. Other than that, they're great. Kathy in Hawaii says, Aloha, I've been wanting to ask you about lab-grown diamonds for a year or so. I turned 41 this year, but my wish was to buy myself a pair of lab-grown diamond earrings for my 40th birthday, which I didn't. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not sure where to buy, how to trust them, what's a good deal. You keep mentioning used diamonds, but where do you buy those? Also, I feel like I need a degree in gemology to decipher all the codes in the ads. What clarity level? What's excellent cut? colorless what type of material 10 karat 14 karat or 18 karat gold i don't know my only exposure to real diamonds are at costco but i think i want two karat and costco doesn't have them so i'm not even sure that's the size i'd like some studded diamond earrings are something i'd like to buy for myself a lot for a long time and i'm not getting any younger i can't afford to own a home but my retirement is well funded and i've been debt free since april of 2011. i have a 2005 suv that i bought used in 2009. i earned these earrings and i volunteer a lot kathy you do not have to justify you get your yeah, earrings kathy, That's awesome. get your earrings and lab created diamonds have declined so much in price they're a ridiculous deal and they are now spreading through traditional jewelers it is a different market at a fraction of the cost. The quality, there are more and more sellers of lab-created diamonds. You can see them in person and see the quality. Most of them, though, are sold online. Some of the big players, Brilliant Earth, Clean Origin, uh, even De Beers, the diamond cartel, has, as a defensive move, a very high-volume lab-created diamond seller, lab diamond seller, called a light lightbox.com and blue you, nile also blue nile blue has nile, lab created as it well originally as was traditional dug out of the earth diamonds right and so lightbox sells a lot of the diamond stud, stud earrings, earrings. Mm-hmm. you can go there and you can see pretty easily what is available from them and i'm looking at earrings you said two carats right mm-hmm. so Two carat each or total weight. That was not clear, but... If you look, you'll see, like, buying high-quality two-carat total weight, one each year, 2100 bucks. I mean, that is so much cheaper than dug-out-of-the-earth diamonds, it's not even close. So look at the sellers. You can even, again, you can go to a lot of local jewelers. Now we'll say on their websites and their ads where you can buy lab diamonds from them. You can go in, you can see them, you can decide if they're good enough, and then compare the price and the color and clarity that's available from the online sellers. And they generally don't play games with that stuff, but it has changed the marketplace for the better, and it's absolutely great. Go treat yourself. You enjoy those diamonds. Send us a picture of you smiling, wearing your new lab diamonds. Uh, In resale, lab diamonds have like no value. Traditional diamonds lose enormous value used. So this is lab diamonds are a cheaper way to get a beautiful, brilliant stone. Chemically, they're identical to dug out of the earth diamonds. 
They just have a marking on them that designates their lab created. So resale, they have less value. And new, they have less value. So enjoy them. And if you're going to buy used, I've seen a lot of diamonds being sold on Facebook Marketplace. I would meet the person at a jeweler and pay to have the diamonds evaluated there. Yeah, I'm cons- I'm, I, you didn't hear me say, yeah, buy used. It's easy. It's great. It's not easy. And it may not be great because you may be being sold junk. Coming up ahead, we're going to talk about a shift in the restaurant business that is so your wallet's friend. I love it. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So you never know what you talk about here on the mic that leads to strong reactions. Well, we all have to eat. So when I was talking about the food delivery apps and how you get ripped off using them to get food, even if you go pick it up, it generated a lot of interesting feedback. And just in short summary, I wanted to tell you that if you do use a food delivery app, as several lawsuits settled recently have found to be true, you see a menu with prices and you're paying for the food delivery service and you're tipping the driver. Know this, that the prices you see are usually going to be 30% higher than the actual restaurant prices. And then I was talking about the fact that I have never used a food delivery app to bring food to me. I like my food hot, like it's supposed to be. Cold food, cold, hot food, hot. And the time you lose with the delivery, you're not going to have that. So I go and pick it up. Well, then I learned that a lot of restaurants use a third-party service to take online pickup orders, and they, again, are charging menu prices that are often 30% higher than in the restaurant. Then I see something recently, two restaurants in Florida, they were sit-down restaurants, not quick-serve fast food, but what used to be called white tablecloth restaurants, independents, not chains. Both had added drive-through windows for people picking up food. I mean, you think about the evolution of the drive-through from, I think, originally In-N-Out Burger may have come up with the first widespread use of drive-throughs, maybe. Anyway, It was always something we thought about with fast food. And then we thought about it more recently with quick serve. And now here we are with sit-down restaurants offering drive-thrus. And so it is a real change in the marketplace, how we get our food. And I know that the use of Uber Eats and its competitors becomes habit-forming. And when the weather's bad, you don't want to go out and all that. But do you want to pay all that money for food and pay 30% extra and have the food come soggy or cold or whatever it is? Not me. Not me. And I am willing to be my own Uber Eats driver and go get the food and bring it home 
the turnaround's much quicker, food's hotter, and it's much cheaper for you to go get it. And this trend of people not wanting the experience, there was a story recently in the New York Times about how, uh, do you know restaurant architecture is a whole field of architecture? I could see that, yeah. And so when restaurants are designed now of any price point, the architects are, are drawing them up with much less seating area because one of the habits that seems to be permanent from COVID is people have discovered even if they don't want to cook and they want to eat food somebody else did for them, they don't want to eat at the restaurant in many cases. They want to bring it home. Is that something you do in your household or how, when y'all don't want to cook, what do you do? Usually we pick it up. Like So you are picking it up. Instead yeah, but of, like, it'd be like a burrito place. Like we're not, if we want, I mean, I like to eat out and I like to sit down if I'm going to eat out. Like it's rare. I can't imagine doing pickup from a expensive restaurant. That would be very rare. And I do use DoorDash on occasion. We live across the street from a very expensive restaurant that's a chain called Capital Grill. And I guess the average ticket per person there is probably 70 a person or something like that. I mean, it's an expensive restaurant. Maybe more than that. Is it more than that? I don't know. Depends on if they're using the Bermuda Triangle, according to Clark Howard. Yes. The Bermuda Triangle of dining. Alcohol desserts. Alcohol appetizers. A- alcohol appetizers desserts. Anyway, so I walk our dogs right by the Capitol Grill in you know, their evening walk, I see person after person after person doing carryout there. Mm. And you think something like Capital Grill that's so expensive per person that it would be people that want the whole dining experience. Yeah, yeah. But they're doing carryout there too. Wow. And so I can see this progression where we're going to have more and more people that are going to sit down restaurants or white tablecloth restaurants or whatever you want to call them that will now have drive throughs All right. We'll go to some questions now. Renee in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., says, with the arrival of the holiday season, I'm faced with a choice concerning my bonus. Should I take the cash or the equivalent of time off? To make an informed decision, I'd like to understand which option offers better financial benefits, both in the immediate future and in the long term. Also, considering that time off awards are not tax exempt, does selecting time off provide a better option tax wise? Love your show. I've been a fan for many years. So if they give you imputed additional vacation, you're saying it's treated like if you got a gift from your employer of a certain value, they would issue that would reflect on your W-2 or you'd get a separate 1099 is how I read this. So... Renee, if that is the case, this is all about you. Do you need more time off? Would you love more time off? Are you burned out? You know, most people don't use all the vacation they're already entitled to. If you've used all the vacation and you feel like you really want to treat yourself to some more time off, take time off. If you don't, we had somebody recently who referred to the magic month who gets bi-weekly. Right. That twice a year they have months that you get, if you get paid bi-weekly, you got three paychecks instead of two. And they treat that as bonus money that goes into savings. In your case, if you don't feel burned out and you work the weeks and you got that extra money, then that money 
should go into savings or something like that, that there's a specific reward. If you want later to take a vacation, it's money you can use for that, that you save that money instead of spending it. Charlotte and Stelios in Cyprus wrote in, Hey Clark, we're listening from Europe and would love your opinion on the cheapest airline to travel from Europe to the USA. Also, where in the U.S. would you recommend for a girl who loves great food and shopping and a guy who loves to hike? We love your show. Gosh, I immediately have suggestions for where I'd go for great food, shopping, hiking. I've got a number one recommendation, but first let me answer the airfare thing. The best deal on airfare from Europe to the U.S. is on Norse, N-O-R-S-E, which is going to an increasing number of destinations from Europe. And if you're doing this as one way instead of round trip, Norse offers one-way fares. But more service and still decent fares is on Iceland Air. that has a hub in Reykjavik. You can have a free stopover in Reykjavik going or coming. They offer service widely across Europe. Don't know if they fly to Cyprus or not, but you can go through Reykjavik and then go to a very large number of destinations across North America. The number one place that I would think about for what you said, food, shopping, hiking, got to be Denver, Colorado. Denver, without question, has a hiking and fitness culture, in my opinion, unlike any elsewhere in the United States. It's why people in Colorado, in various surveys, seem to be the healthiest, most fit people in the United States because there is such a culture around fitness. Great restaurant scene in Denver, and all the shopping you could ever want at every price point. The runner-up would be Salt Lake City, Utah, Salt Lake is less congested, has some incredible beauty, every direction you could go from Salt Lake. So those would be my two favorites. Living in Cyprus, you're used to warmer weather generally than you would have in Denver or Salt Lake, particularly in the winter. But those would be my recommendations and glad you enjoy listening to us in Cyprus. And Iceland Air does not fly to Cyprus. Thank you for checking. But you can easily get from Cyprus to a departure point for either Norse or Iceland Air. Trevor in Georgia says, as someone who loves traveling, I thought you could help me out with something. I'm about to embark on a trip and was wondering what your thoughts are on duty-free shops. Do you think they offer good value for the money or are they simply a tourist trap? For the most part, duty-free shops are a tourist trap unless there are certain items you like that are high tax where you live. So you're in Georgia. As an example, if you're a smoker, many times at a duty-free shop, cigarettes will be much cheaper than they will be uh, most anywhere in the United States, except Georgia is a fairly low tax state on cigarettes. A lot of times alcohol is something people buy duty-free because many states charge very high taxes on alcohol. Now, the thing is, there are limits on what you're allowed to bring in duty-free of cigarettes or alcohol. You bring excess, it's going to be seized. 
And if you go to a duty-free shop, it means you haven't paid duty where you bought it, but you may be subject to duty by U.S. Customs. So the limits are pretty easy to find out what you can bring in. But the other stuff they sell in duty-free shops, jewelry, makeup, uh, other things like that. Perfume, candy, yeah. Usually are not a deal at all. When's the last time you bought something in a duty-free shop? Never bought something duty-free. That's your answer. Yeah. But, you know, I always travel with a carry-on, and I never go shopping when I'm overseas. So I'm really the wrong one to ask. Okay. I, I am not a good sample <laughs> for shopping overseas because my shopping overseas is generally for groceries at Aldi or Lidl and wherever I am in Europe. And in other countries, it'll be at a hypermarket or something like that for more affordable food when I'm on a trip. So possessions, I don't buy things overseas, just not my thing. Well, Krista, do we have a Clarky today? We do. Hi, my name is Vicki, and I'm from Cumming, Georgia. And I've been listening to Clark for, gosh, over 20 years. And I just want to tell him I am an essential worker. I had to work during the pandemic. I manage a couple of doctor's offices, and so we had to be there every day because we took care of children. And... Clark is what got me through the pandemic. Every morning, it was just so nice to listen to Clark and to have him act like everything was so normal and everything was going to be okay, and he was so upbeat. And I just have to thank you because, honestly, I don't know what I'd have done without you during that time. Thank you so much for all that all of you do, and especially you, Clark. Thank you. Vicki, that's very kind of you, and... You know, in times of crisis, whatever it is that you find soothing, like Krista, you find there are certain podcasts that really speak to you when you're feeling upset or whatever. Well, I love to walk and I listen to podcasts while I walk and that really nature does it for me, for sure. And so there are all kinds of things that work. And I'm so glad that for whatever reason, I was comforting to you during the height of COVID. And I want to thank you so much for you being there on the front lines for people during the height of COVID, which was a brutal time for us. We're still dealing with the innate pessimism that people feel, not just in the United States, you know, where Americans are saying, you know, the country's on the wrong track, you know, like 80% or whatever. Turns out that people are saying that all over the world because the pandemic was so unsettling. It was like, it was like an earthquake under us, uh, emotionally and psychologically. And so it is hard when we go through a just horrific disruption of our lives. And I remember early in the pandemic, I did deep reading because I'd read earlier in my life about the um, flu epidemic following World War One that killed enormous numbers of millions of people around the world. And how unsettled life was for people going through it and in the aftermath of it. And I remember the signs you'd see in a lot of places where that we will be okay or everything will be okay or whatever those signs said that people put up around the country that I think started in Britain that people were doing those signs. So it is true there are always going to be times in our lives 
It could be something personal that happens within the four walls of our own lives. Or it could be something that happens in the world or in our own town or in our society or in our country. And eventually, we are okay because human beings always figure out a way to overcome collectively. I'm just glad because it sounded like the, the difficulty of the time has now passed for you. And again, thank you for your service during the pandemic. And if you have a Clarkie you'd like to share, it's really easy. Just call us at 404-981-2071 and have a great day.